Hello and welcome to another episode of Rant About It by the BU Chapter of Philosophy, Politics and Economic Society, a podcast where topics of discussion are decided based on the spin of a wheel. To stay updated on all our future events, follow our Insta handle, BUPPE Society, and like us on Facebook. Our Facebook page is called Boston University PPE Society. So if you don't remember me, my name is Shrey. <laughs> Amazing. My name is Dennis. I'm Roberto. And I'm Thomas. And I'm Zoe. <laughs> Great. So today we will be discussing three topics the Department of Education budget cuts, growth mindset, and the college admission scandal. So let's start with the Department of Education budget cuts. So for those of you who don't know, this was a proposal to cut basically 7.1 billion in funding from the education department. So this big of a cut would eliminate a range of programs such as the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program which is basically an incentive program that forgives the student loans of public service workers. And under this cut, there would also be cuts to the National Institutes of Health, which funds a lot of research in higher education. And it would also cut funding for teacher development programs. Whoa. So how do you guys feel about this? Rage. (laughs) Um, I'd say ambivalence in that it seems to have it seems to have some sort some understandable justification but it seems to be as all things from this never administration done in a ham-fisted way yeah i also read that they are uh, one of the other propositions was uh, cutting funding for subsidized stafford loans for for student loans Wait, so for someone who doesn't know too much about how the whole American system is set up, would this be cutting funds from a central fund or is it at the state level? How does this work out? So all of these funds are at the federal level, um, specifically with with the student loan program. It's all distributed directly by the federal government. Um, uh, the, The other question with teacher training and stuff like that usually comes out of state budgets uh, and so what will happen is that the federal government will collect a certain amount of tax for the Department of Education and then distribute that to the states to to enact their various programs. I see so this is basically cutting funds from the central at the central level so the states are getting less funds. Uh, for the state programs yes and then for the um, for the non-state programs, so for the student loan program, for example, it will be cut directly from federal programs. So it's a mixture. Uh, how, how does, um, how do they validate these cuts? Like, how do they explain um, why they are doing it? What do you guys think about the discussion that's been going on? I think it's. I think they put it in terms of reallocation. I also read that they're moving. They're well. They're decreasing this the loans and the programs they're also increasing char- uh, funding for charter schools for example which uh i don't know if you if you read about charter schools but they can be a little problematic sometimes and there are a lot of good uh a lot of good people running good charter schools but i have um there there's been some problems with them actually in the economic history of education um one argument that 
um, I heard was that charter schools after 1970s also one was one of the reasons why the education system started to fail and the um, the efficiency was lowered. Um, that's not generally the case in that charter schools are almost always more effective than public schools in terms of the in terms of just naively the results that they that they yield. So in terms what of better test scores and stuff like that, and other kind of you know metrics for for you know how the students perform. Uh, the question for charter schools isn't whether or not they're better than public schools, so much as whether or not they're worth this, the effort. Because it could be it could be argued at least that the reason that they're better is because there's more selection uh, by in terms of who gets in, uh, both in that you have certain charter schools that are selective, um, you know, and so obviously if you have a selective school, you're going to have better students get in. But also, even in a lot of the public schools, um, when you deal with school vouchers and stuff like that, which is the main, which is the main system that you know people who are advocating for school choice are advocating for, uh, the question is never absolute effectiveness so much as just um, whether or not the, pe- the kids who are using the actually taking advantage of those vouchers would do well anyways, because the kids who would drop out would just drop out. I. Um... I want to mention the point about like selectiveness because we're going to later talk about the college admissions scandal too and this idea of selectiveness is very deviated in different situations I feel like which is one of the causes of why charter schools are um, so why so many people are against them I guess Mm. because of their selectiveness methods also they don't particularly benefit a Equality, in a sense, because since they're private, privately managed, uh, charter schools usually don't they they don't they don't work at at a low income areas. Exactly, and yeah. then all of the state budgets for the education then starts being concentrated on higher socioeconomic areas. Exactly. Yeah. So according to this article by the Atlantic, this is how. Betsy DeVos, who is the education secretary, uh, justifies this. She says, this budget at its core is about education freedom. So, and I'm quoting her here. She says, freedom for America's students to pursue their lifelong learning journeys in the ways and places that work best for them. Freedom for teachers to, to develop their talents and pursue their passions and freedom from the top down. Washington knows best approach that has proven ineffective and even harmful to students. This is, um, so she says freedom for teachers to do as they please. And if there is a budget cut, if there is no, if they cut out the development programs for the teachers, how really is there a freedom for teachers to do as they please? One of the reasons of the charter schools was that um, the education, like uh, the syllabi would be decentralized, you know? In Nordic countries, we always talk about one of the bis- biggest reasons why the education system is so good is because they have this one general outline, but all of the teachers are able to choose their whole whole curriculum themselves. So this was the idea behind like allowing state um, funds to be used for such um, education systems. But there's also idea that charter schools are misusing this and they still have like a stricter plan. So. The incentive of the the state um, don't, state fundings is this, 
but I don't. I'm not sure of the effectiveness, honestly. I mean, objectively, it would make more sense, right? Because it's much states would know better of exactly. how to utilize those funds and where to um, allocate them, and even teachers would would know better about their students and what areas or what fields they need more help with, and maybe based on that they can decide the whole curriculum. Exactly, and then at that point you will be able to change some certain things according to your own culture and geography, you know. Somewhere, maybe in some school, a kid will be able to um, plant a different um, seed, for example, for a class in the garden, but in another place the weather is different and they won't be able to do that. So even a simple like regulation of like teaching them how to do this specific thing um, is not beneficial in different cultural and geographical situations because you need to give a general view of everything, but then you need to um, invest in the child's like local um, learning too. Um, I'd, I'd say that charter schools for the most part, um, at least with in, at least in the American context with talks about school choice, um, are are kind of set up are set up and sought out with the idea of applying selectionary forces to education um, because it isn't just a matter of you know kind of 10th amendment states rights versus federal rights and jurisdiction and whatnot with regards to you know Washington doesn't know what, what to do but Austin does it's a matter of um, the idea that state governments in general just won't be able to find the won't be able to find the right experts you know at all to um, figure out what the best single approach is and so the hope is that with school choice, you are depoliticizing and decentralizing curriculum, which will create you know variation in curriculum. And then when you couple with that the fact that charter schools can be shut down if they fail, um, unlike you know public schools where there, generally speaking, aren't super strict consequences for people who are screwing up tests and stuff like that, other than a loss of some amount of funding due to no child left behind. Um, what we end up seeing is, well, at least the, what we hope to end up seeing with school choice is that over time, the bad schools will stop their bad practices because they're not performing as well as the good schools. And so you can take that selectionary force and use it to increase performance overall across all schools. So this raises a question then, this idea which seems so effective on paper, how does it not translate to reality? Why do these schools not turn out to be as as effective as one might think them to be, expect them to be. One of my concerns is that um, looking at tech test scores could be problematic. For example, what if in one school the teachers will give kids A anyways just to keep the school credentials high and they're still not educating the kids or just they're, they're just making them pass so that they themselves can look good. One thing I'd say is that, in general, they are charter schools are more effective than you know your typical public school, um, and so there are there are certain problems that are kind of unique to charter schools. So um, uh, teachers don't necessarily have strong like you know academic protections. It's like they they might be more more susceptible to what the board wants them to do in the classroom. If you're concerned about that, um, they might they might they might have. Um, they might be more aggressive with applying uh, dis disciplinary measures against students, which might have other uh, negative social consequences uh, in comparison to public, certain public schools. Um, but in terms of just performance, 
they do tend to perform better. The question is, the question fundamentally is that uh, there might, in in terms of education, in public funded education, uh, there might not be that much room to improve overall in America. Um, I know Andrew Yang likes to cite a stat, and I'm not certain um, how how much veracity there is to this, but he likes to claim that about seven, something along the lines of 75% of educational performance can be attributed to out-of-school factors. So things like presence of parents, um, you know, just actual dedication to the work and stuff like that. If you have a school where 40% of the student body is going to drop out before they graduate high school, you can't take those kids and stick, stick them even in a one-on-one -on -one context and get them to learn because they're just not willing to learn. And so the question would be, question ultimately in improving American education is getting people to care about education. Upon that, I would like like I would like to say that one of the roles of school and the teachers in the school should be to mentor these kids. I mean obviously I definitely agree. Like family factors do apply, but if you're an inspirational teacher, if you're a champion for a student, then they might stay at school too. So it's not just their fault, though. They should just come to school and discuss. Like, there should be a support system in the school to be able to help them to continue. It is, like, the core job of um, a school. Which brings me to our next topic. Hold on. Before, before, before we go on to the next topic, <laughs> I, I just want to say I definitely agree with you, Dennis. I think it is the responsibility of the school to undertake some attempts it might they might have to go out of their comfort zone to even do that but they should they should it should be their responsibility to have some programs or something that encourages students to attend schools and a lot of times students don't realize how important schooling is and how it can make a big difference in their life it can it can even take them out of poverty if they stay in school stay on track graduate it can open up so many doors for them, and it is the responsibility of the school to make sure that the students understand that. The school should be an opportunity for you. The school should be an opportunity for you, and the students should know that, that it is an opportunity for them. And like I agree with your point. We should value education much more. And I think that one of the problems in America is that um, I would like to generalize that like most students don't have a respect for teachers because of the... Um, reason that we're paying them so much money we're expecting them to like give us everything we need are we paying them so much money though that's just another um, whole oh we're not topic. paying generally speaking we think that we are yeah we're paying the general generally speaking we are actually in that the u.s is in the top 10 countries in the world in terms of teacher compensation and it's in the top five or so i want to say in starting salary um, so is that in absolute terms or relative terms? Because obviously it will be important. higher for the U.S. in relative terms. But if you look at it absolutely, this is this is this is comparing it to other first world countries for the most part. So you know, all the uh, OCD country, uh, OECD countries, is it OCD or OECD? I can't OECD. All the OECD countries, um, the U.S. tends to have higher, uh, not higher salaries than all of them. For example, Luxembourg is dis has disproportionately higher. Salaries, but, the, but they're also they're also in education. And so, generally speaking, like Korea and Japan will have higher compensation. Uh, Would you the, agree about our relationship of respect, though? Uh, yeah, the 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 respect issue is. Um, respect for teachers 
comes the, the lack of respect for teachers, I'd say, comes from a lack of respect for education in general. Okay. I think it also has not not sitting on American culture here, but it also does come from the culture and like the traditions you're born up with. So I know in Asian culture you're just that's just how you're brought up. You have you have to respect your elders and that definitely translates into when you're in a school, you have to respect your teacher because your teacher is your elder. So it I think culture plays a big role in that. I definitely agree. And then now hopefully we can go on to our growth mindset uh, topic, which I should, I think should become a part of every culture. So Shrey brought this up during the um, event because he watched the, one of the best TED Talks. Yeah, so I saw this TED Talk called The Power of Believing That You Can Improve by Carol Dweck. I might not be pronouncing her last name right, but it's spelled as D-W-E-C-K. And where she talks about the power of not yet, where in a lot of schools, report cards say pass or fail. But in this, in her school, she started this method where she, instead of writing fail, she said not yet. So this encourages the students to work hard and make sure that they change that not yet into pass. And a growth, growth mindset is basically an idea that we can grow our brain's capacity to learn and solve problems. I uh, I don't know if I completely agree with that approach because I think uh, seeing that big F on your exam or seeing that big F on your homework, kind of having that image of what failure looks like is, uh, I'd say, more helpful uh, so you think term. having that f is a bigger incentive for the students to perform better the next time it shames mm. i i feel mm. like it shames them into not wanting to perform again because people might get scared that they might get an f again and why try when you can just just mm. not do it you know just not get an f one of my favorite turkish sayings is um it's not shameful not to know it's shameful not to learn yeah i mean I consider that uh, failures in, in tests and failures in, in school in general, they are there to show you that if you don't do the work, you don't get good results. And I think that applies for most areas in life outside of school also. So, but for example, in life outside of school, you won't see a, a not yet if you don't put in the work. That's what I'm trying to get to. That's I totally agree with you, but I feel a lot of times the fail might discourage people from trying again don't you agree with that i think that failure should also be embraced we learn from failure especially in our generation like failure is how you learn like everywhere but i understand your point because in real life it's not like that but the idea is that in real life it's not like that and we all do fail but when you have a fixed mindset you um, tell this kid that you just failed and you're a failure in the growth mindset it says yeah you failed but let's try again and uh, you'll learn next time. Yeah, and that's the whole idea of not yet. You can you keep on trying until you succeed. So it's not about failing and stopping, but you fail and then it's like falling and then you get up and you keep on walking and then you fall again and you get up and you do that as many times as you have to until you reach the destination. Um, yeah, and so I think if we try to apply this approach, I think if we apply this whole kind of, you know, F versus not yet discussion to the U.S. context, um, it might uh, shed some light on some things. 
uh, there was a there was a study done a few years ago comparing test test you know, testing results in Wisconsin and Texas. For some reason, I can't remember why, but um, I think it was I think it was an attempt to demonstrate some sort of demographic you know hypothesis or something like that. But um, uh, uh, Wisconsin, generally speaking, has higher test scores on average than Texas. But what happens is when you take all the white students in Texas and you take all the white students in Wisconsin. The white students in Texas perform much better than the white students in Wisconsin. And then when you look at the demographics further, there's also a lot fewer white students in Texas, and they tend to be a lot higher class than the, um, than the white students in Wisconsin will be on average. Um, uh, which, which, and so if, what, I'm, and what I'm trying to say here is that um, a lot of the problems with American education is with you know, the poor uh, minority kids who don't have, you know, don't have many cultural resources available to them to actually succeed and thrive in school. Um, because if we look, if we look at the, you know, kids don't just go into school with, um, you know, as a blank slate, they go in with a pre-existing cultural narrative, right? And so, um, if you go, if you go in with the expect, with, you know, your parents expecting that you're going to be applying to Ivy Leagues in the future, as a lot of kids in my high school did, um, you're more, you're a lot more likely to do well. Whereas, if you go in with the expectation that you know the man's just trying to keep you down, and you know you 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 and your family are all destined to fail anyways, the first time you get an F or something like that, it just reinforces that belief and encourages you to drop out. And so, not yet, I think is probably I don't think it necessarily had that much of an effect on actual performance. What I think it did was it served as a signal signifier for a much broader difference in mindset about education uh, between these between a teacher who would give and not yet grade and a teacher who would give and a grade of, of a fail. That's, I agree, I agree absolutely. And the whole reason I think why the not set, I not yet um, ideology works is because it breaks those kind of cultural barriers or any kind of discrimination in that field. field. Because when you say you're a failure, we're lenient to associate that with something in our lives like i'm a failure because of this or you know like we're ready to accept that but when you say not yet then it means it has nothing to do with anything you are because it's about a possibility in the future that shouldn't like nothing should limit that you know like i think the failure definitely reinforces some other things but the not yet the only thing it reinforces is that it's possible you know yeah i can definitely agree with that part because I'm, I'm guessing most of us can think of, of a couple of people that when they don't do well, they kind of, they put themselves down and they, if, if they don't think good about themselves, they kind of confirm those uh, perceptions of themselves by looking at their results instead of trying to get better. Yeah, so I feel like this is not only about like telling you, oh, you have a failure. It's also about like a a acknowledging that you failed. Because like acknowledgement is really important to for you to figure out, oh, I did not do well. So it's like, I mean, for myself, I figure out, I also because I come from like an educational system that tells you you failed. And also, but like at times I'm actually prompt more by that. And it's also because I have like a comparatively more motivating environment that actually supports me. So it's not about like telling you, oh, I give you an F, then you're going to feel, oh, I feel so shameful. I feel f shameful indeed, but also because like the environment 
that prompts me, they supports me, I am able to acknowledge I did not do well. So I know like I need to look at that directly so I do not like run away from anything. So I feel that's also one of the things about like growth of mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so to be the devil's advocate here. Um, <laughs> so the culture that I come from, as some of you cool people might call it, the curry culture. <laughs> yeah, also you guys should mention your cultures. Right, so um, I'm from India, and in Louis India... was talking about China. Because <laughs> I know everyone's going to be like, where are they from? <laughs> yeah. So Zoe's from China. Yeah, I'm from China. So like my uh, the culture the culture I come from is like a so we tend to have very strict teachers. So like when I came to US, most of my professors are so nice to me that in a way that's yeah that's supportive. But in another way, when I like when I fail something, I want you to t- tell me that I did not do well so that I know. So, so I feel that's one of the main difference for my background to the cultural system here but also it's like people have different preference because it's kind of like yeah some people would like really supportive teachers but i prefer some people to tell me oh you did it wrong one one thing i just want to mention before you start is i just remembered at school some teachers would like give me low grades because they expected higher that's also weird. That was not a growth That's mindset. Really like, I would get a 70 and I would be like, um, why? Like I participated in class and everything. And she's like, you could have done better. And I'm like, well, that's not going to make me do better. And I would like <laughs> stop um, caring about that class. Honestly, it was terrible. Wow, that's kind of counterintuitive. Like you get great, you exactly. get graded for participation. And because of her expectation, you're getting a lower grade. But going back to my um, example... So the curry culture, <laughs> um, growing up, it didn't matter. I mean, it did matter if you fail or not, but it was more about how much more you got, how much more marks or how much, how much of a better grade you got from your friend or your cousin or your brother. And that, that competitive nature just really, it, it was a big incentive for everyone to try harder to make sure that you get a better grade than everyone else. I remember a lot of times when in middle school, I so my cousin and I went to the same middle school. We we um, we were in the same class, and at times whenever he got a better grade than me in certain classes, my mom would come back home, look at my report card, and be like, "Why did he get a better grade than you?" And just I I remember just like sitting there thinking, "Okay, like I cannot let this happen again next time. I need to make sure that I get a better grade than my cousin so that my mom doesn't come up to me and says that, "Oh, like you're she didn't explicitly say that, "Oh, you're a disgrace." But like that's what I That's the cultural that's, connotation. Yeah, like yeah. that's what I felt. I felt like I was disgracing my family and so oh my God. the next time I would try harder and get a better grade. So an F would I, I would say an F would also be an incentive for students to perform better. I mean, it, it all depends on the person. It, it really, it, it's different for everyone. Some things that w- might work for me might not work for you, Dennis, and some things that work for you might not work for me. So it's, it's really different. And I think it is the job of a teacher to make sure that they exactly. modify the th- 
they obviously cannot modify the whole course for each and every single student but like some aspect of the some aspect they could modify to make sure that the students are being incentivized in the right way and they're learning because basically they're, they're there to learn i think one of the like most important points to be able to allow this to happen is the teacher student ratio because if the if there are 50 kids in the class the kid, the teacher is not going to be able to keep up with um, trying to support all of the different learning structures because I mean some of us learn by um, have better memory some of us have a visual memory some of us has a um, listening memory feeling we are all unique individuals oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> so we should have spaces to allow all of us to be able to express and learn in our own special ways and it's hard obviously it's hard to do this and the only way to do this is to have a low student teacher ratio that's why that's why we're talking about that too like in lectures at bu we don't learn anything my lowest grades are my lecture classes but my little discussion classes are my best because i got to discuss and elaborate but then that's different for some people too Right, and what was what was I remember you telling us your the teacher student ratio in your school was very good. No, right? My high school graduation class was forty four people. Like my physics class was me and another person. That's crazy. How many how many how how big was your faculty? Um, I had like a teacher for every different topic. I had like ten, thirteen classes. Classes wouldn't be more than like fifteen, twenty people, basically. I mean, they can get close to that in some some American suburbs. Um, and American suburbs, like like. I mean, a lot of so like one of the. That's an isolated. I mean, it's, not, it's programs, not that isolated though. Is the thing a lot of people live, still live in the suburbs. But especially in like pre-K, one of the biggest problems is the teacher-student ratio. There's a huge program called JumpStart, um, which was initiated with the Poverty Act, actually, and they start to they recruit students in colleges um, to go to these pre-k schools and help uh, teachers so that a classroom when there's one teacher to 30 um, like little kids especially they need the highest um, rate highest teachers student rate like lowest teacher student ratio and then uh, um, five college students come into the class and start reading in groups do like little reading groups and immediately like the ratio drops down um, and the Vocabulary increases, a child, child's engagement increases. It's incredible. On that topic, um, on that note, we should go on to our final topic, which is the um, beautiful scandal that we were no, no one was um, surprised. Surprised. Of. <laughs> do you want to mention what? Ha do you want to so, mention what happens? So, uh, to recap for our listeners, because the story is. <laughs> Close to a month old now, I want to say. Yeah. Some, some, something like that. Um, we're getting there. But um, in early to mid-March, um, the FBI arrested about 50 people on charges uh, of uh, various sorts of mail fraud and uh, wire fraud and things of the sort. And so what had happened was that a large number of rich parents had paid a so-called college admissions advisor um, uh, to bribe university officials to get their students uh, into universities that they weren't qualified to get into. Uh, the two poster children of this are actresses Felicity Huffman of, I don't know what she's famous for. <laughs> okay, uh, she's famous for being married to William H. Macy. <laughs> and um, 
uh, Lori Laughlin of Full House fame. Um, and so they had paid thousands of dollars. Uh, Huffman, I think, paid 15000 And so she's probably, after now that she's pled guilty, she's probably going to get off with probation. Um, and then Laughlin paid $500,000, which means that she's probably going to go to prison. Uh, <laughs> so fun times. But um, so um, they'd, they'd paid bribes to various university officials at schools like USC and Harvard and um, SAT, SAT uh, proctors. Um, so, for example, um, af- after after SAT tests, proctors ha- would um, go back and correct uh, student answers to make sure that they got better scores and things of the sort. Um, and then they uh, they would also pay athletics officials to put su- to give students athletic careers that they didn't actually have uh, to get into universities. Uh, uh, one photoshopped pictures. Yeah, one one girl was photo. Uh, there were several girls who were photoshopped into pictures of them of, into pictures of people Photoshop rowing. Photoshop strikes again. In <laughs> um, one particular humorous episode, a girl claimed to be a skilled coxswain. Uh, and had photo and accidentally uh, photographed herself with a picture of an oar. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> which which shows, accurate. <laughs> which, which which does speak to the competence of these people. Uh, and I think I mean, it is they this... still they still got in. So uh, <laughs> at least be smart about it, you know. But they're not smart. That's why they have to do. If these they were things, smart, they wouldn't have had to bribe university officials. And so, as as an aside. Um, because uh, these people were all caught because the man behind the operation who was nominally running a uh, charity to support uh, housing for low-income university students, uh, just add icing to the icing on top of the cake, um, had been flipped by the FBI and then, Im- then immediately went and contacted all of his old clients and asked them to do more crime. So a general rule of thumb for the public, gen- if, 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 if somebody... Who, if the FBI shows up, no, 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 no. Hold on. If if a past accomplice to a crime calls you over the phone and asks you to explain in detail how you willingly and no, knowingly uh, committed a crime, tell that person that you have no idea what they're talking about. Hang up and never speak to them again because they are working for the feds and they're coming for you. Just don't. Just don't. Like I don't know. Don't immediately talk about how you want to give it more crimes. <laughs> Um, so, but as we see, like we weren't surprised that. Um, why? Why weren't we surprised? Could you tell? Uh, talk about uh, that. I'd, I mean, I'd say it's because you know people people with resources will do what they can to gain the system, um, and so the elephant in the room here, I think, is comparisons of this scandal to various outrages in the past over, uh, let's say, legitimate um, admissions buying, where. Or as the as our uh, as our friend the uh, as our friend the snitch called it the back door, as opposed to his you know uh, patented uh, trademark term of the side door, um, where instead of paying hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, to bribe individual officials, you you donate millions of dollars to the university, um, and so immediately you know um, there was there was one incident where uh, Dr. Dre had bragged about how his daughter didn't didn't had not needed to bribe anybody to get in until it was revealed that he donated seventy million dollars over the past decade to USC. <laughs> uh, and then there's the uh, ever-present uh, Jared Kushner case where his father had donated around I want to say it was twelve million dollars to Harvard uh, uh, before he had been admitted 
to the surprise of his to the surprise of his admissions counselors due to his mediocre grades. Um, yeah, we were talking about how every university has literally like these set right. Like if they donate this much, it's a definite um, yes, and this much means this and stuff. And then we're like, well, we're not surprised. Yeah, you know, we're not surprised that this system also is corrupt and once again if education was free i don't think we would have these problems we wouldn't have asymmetric information but you know that's just my opinion why i wasn't surprised is because this is so common in india i'm not even kidding yeah, same, and but everyone knows about it people do it very openly and no one cares i mean people <laughs> do care people who cannot get into these colleges they care but it just there's everyone's so open about it and the government does nothing and there's this whole other thing about reservation where in india certain seats are reserved for a certain minority from like a ethnic class and originally it was meant to be for people who were from a particular ethnic class who couldn't necessarily afford college but now people who are extremely rich but still belong to that class use those seats to get into particular colleges and that is so unfair and it makes me so mad yes Rage. it reminds it reminds me to a certain extent of a case at harvard a few years ago where the black student union was complaining about the fact that there were too many african students on campus because they were supposedly taking uh, because they were supposedly taking spots from African American students, um, uh, the logic, I guess, being that um, the African students were, you know, the children of rich of you know the rich bourgeoisie, bourgeoisie from, you know, say Nigeria, or they were doctors or something like that who had either who either lived in foreign countries who had come to the U.S. as immigrants to work in upper class or upper middle class jobs. Uh, and who were then rich enough to give to give the resources to their media, otherwise mediocre child to get into Harvard, whereas you know supposedly the uh, underprivileged uh, you know African American students uh, weren't able to get in, um, um, and so and so this this whole kind of you know class dichotomy that we you know stems up in a lot of discussions of of college admissions. Um, but for a second, I think I want to go out on a limb, and this might bite me in the ass later, but uh, I want to go out and uh, defend the admission of Jared, Kush Jared Kushner to Harvard. <laughs> Let's go. Uh, yeah, so there's uh, a lot, and I do this because so many people like to, make the, like to make the comparison between this bribery case that we saw and the Harvard case. Um, but I... I say that they're not necessarily comparable because with the bribery case what we had was the paying off of you know certain officials to fraudulently report results so we had for example there was a soccer coach at ucla who was indicted um there the athletic director at usc was indicted uh there have been tests i'm not sure if test proctors have been indicted but they've definitely been implicated in plots to you know fab you know um fraudulently change, change test results. Um, and so these are individual people who are pocketing large sums of money, you know, to, you know, to the net detriment of the university because you're taking away a spot from somebody who's more deserving. Whereas, say, whereas with, say, the Kushner case or the Dr. Dre case, where you're donating tens of millions of dollars, 
I'm not certain that it's a zero-sum case. Because if your dad is willing to pay $12 million to put his name on a building and get Oh, and, and get you into uh, college. Um, well, then, in the grand scheme of things, your presence on that campus will definitely be degrading to the integrity of the institution, right? Because, you know, you know, because you can always, right, it's, it's not going to be, it shouldn't, Harvard shouldn't be as prestigious if you can just buy your way into it. But uh, it's definitely going to, improve the lives of all the students there more so than if Kushner hadn't been admitted, right? I definitely agree that there should be a difference in our um, moral perception, I guess, of um, donation and bribery, <laughs> I think definitely. But on that note, um, to kind of push you guys to maybe think more about charity and donation, we actually, in our meeting today, watched... Dan Pelota's TED talk called The Way We Think About Charity is Dead Wrong. And like that was Shrey's suggestion and it was an amazing, amazing talk. Definitely a new perspective I didn't realize and his statistics are amazing, his story's great. Highly suggested. And on that note too. Thanks for listening in. Make sure to follow us on all our social media handles. Again, our Insta handle is BUPP Society. And our Facebook page is called Boston University PPE Society. If you have any suggestions for future discussion topics, please send us an email at ppe at bu.edu. And we'll talk about your topic on our next episode. Make sure to tune in next time and goodbye. Goodbye.